0: It's one thing to sing a song, it's another thing to believe what you're singing. And I think those ladies believed what they were singing, amen? Praise the Lord. I believe that this is the Word of God. It's not that it's a book that contains words about God. It is that these are the words of God to us. The word of God has been given to us, to us. There are many truths in the word of God that are hard to understand, and there are others that are even harder to accept. One particular inconvenient truth found in the word of God is the truth that there is but one way, and only one way. And that truth is disconcerting to fallen mankind, to think that there's only one way that cuts against the grain of our fallen nature. In America, we expect options and choices, right? We want it our way. Yet the Bible says there is only one way. On the heels of an awesome miracle of a lame man being healed from birth. Remember, uh, Acts 3 doesn't give you the full commentary, but as you read through the book of Acts, you find out that he had been lame from birth, and he was 40 years old. What an awesome, awesome miracle. On the heels of that miracle, Peter preaches a phenomenal sermon. Remember, the apostolic preaching always contained these four reminders to the Jewish people. You crucified the Lord of glory. God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses. And now it's your obligation to repent and believe. That was apostolic preaching. Those are the themes of apostolic preaching. Now that brings us to chapter 4. And of course by way of introduction and what I've already set the stage for, you know that this sermon is about the fact that there is only one name. By the way, if you've been tracking and you can follow the scripture... If you remember right, at the conclusion of Pentecost, Peter is going to do Old Testament, name that tune. Y'all remember that? We're going to do that again today, right? We're going to do it all the way through Acts. Um, Everything that happens in the book of Acts is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. So if you don't know your Old Testament, you're going to get lost and or you're going to have adverse, wrong interpretations of what Acts is about. But do you remember... Whosoever shall call upon the yeah, that's Joel 2, 28 through 32. At the conclusion of that, he says to them, there's coming that day when whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And then if you track that sermon all the way down to Acts 2, 36, he concludes that by saying to us that he has made him both Lord and Christ. And then if you move over into Acts chapter 3, we learn that it is faith in that name that's made This lame man walk. And then we're building all the way up to Acts chapter 4 verse 12. Where there is no other name given among men under heaven. Whereby we must be saved. So there's emphasis upon the name. Much like what we sang today. Right? Much emphasis on the name. Now let's give attention to the reading (coughs) of this perfect, uh, without error, any mixture period of what the word of God says. About this particular truth. That is the most unpopular truth that the Christian world could ever say to a lost world. And that is, there's only one way to have your sins forgiven. There's only one way for you to be on your way to heaven. Right? Y'all believe that? Acts chapter 4 verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple... And the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. If you include in that husband, wife, and one child, you've got 15,000. That, that's, a, that's a really conservative estimate of what we're dealing with here. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. That's an important note, meaning that's 71. That's who makes up the Sanhedrin, 71. And when they had set them in the midst, usually they sat in a semicircle and the the person they were accusing was down below them. So they're in a semicircle. They've got funny hats on, long robes, and here's these hillbillies from Galilee. Seriously, they're not supposed to be on the Sadducean territory. And so when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, "By what power or by what name?" There it is again. What name did you do this? Then Peter Right, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he has the audacity to give verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To God be the glory. Chapter 4, in verses 1 through 4, we have the fruit... Of Peter's second sermon. Don't you love the fruit of a sermon? Jail time <laughs> and church growth. Isn't that awesome? Jail time and church growth. Those are the fruits of Peter's second sermon. And the apostles are interrupted. This is vivid language in verse 1. You know, kind of as he's preaching, uh, beckoning for an invitation to repent and believe. They're interrupted. And Luke, as is his custom being a physician and prone to detail, he says that they're interrupted in their preaching. And this group included priests, temple, a temple officer, and the Sadducees. The priests would have included at that precinct on that particular day anywhere between 24 to 48 priests that would have been working the temple. And so that's their duty. And they're more like uh, temple officers. However, this particular person that's mentioned, or the officer, is that one particular temple officer. And this would have been a very high-ranked position. He would have been well-paid just under the high priest. And he was basically in charge of all temple security. These were priestly families that constituted the religious elite. The political power brokers in Jerusalem, they were basically in charge of the temple. They had absolute sole authority. They uh, were made up primarily of the Sadducees. Y'all know about these guys? They were theologically left of center. (laughs) To say it nicely, they were the liberals in the group. You know, for the longest time in SBC life, we had spring up among us CBFers. Y'all know what those are? It's called the Corporate Baptist Fellowship. They're still among some Southern Baptist churches. Some SBC churches support the CBF and the SBC. The reason the CBF can't support the SBC fully is because they don't agree with the Baptist faith and message as given in 2000. Well, I'm not going to cooperate and I'm not going to have fellowship. Cooperative Baptist Fellowship deny certain aspects that we hold dearly to the scriptures. so they're going to be the liberal wing of the Southern Baptist Convention. Am I educating y'all on something you didn't know? I can tell, right? I'm glad you don't know about them because there's none in this church, right? No CBFers here. But they're, they're the left-wingers, and the Pharisees were the right-wingers. They were theologically conservative Uh, The Sadducees only believed the first five books of the Bible. That would be the books of Moses, called the Pentateuch. They believed it. And on top of that, they rejected all other Old Testament writings other than the first five. They were also anti-supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead, afterlife, angels or demons... And they politically believed that their number one goal was to cooperate with Rome because they didn't want anybody to upset their religious endeavors. They were extremely religious. So they thought the best thing to do was just succumb to Roman bondage and just deal with it. As a matter of fact, they believed way back in the Maccabean Revolt in 165 B.C. that they actually ushered in the Messianic Kingdom. Because of the Maccabean revolt, revolt, and they had gotten that win and victory, they really thought that the Messianic Age was tied to politics. Even some Americans might believe that, right? But the fact of the matter is, uh, again, they taught that the Messiah was not a person, but a political power. So these guys were not only jealous somewhat of Jesus' popularity, that wasn't the main reason. They were really Upset about the fact of his messianic claims. That's what bothered them the most. Verse 2 makes it clear. Y'all see it? They're annoyed. Strong words. They're pretty much ticked off. They've had enough of this. They thought they had already taken care of the Jesus problem. But unless they could put him back in the tomb, they couldn't take away the issue of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here are these hillbillies. And they're up there on Sadducean territory grounds, and they're preaching Jesus. They're preaching His name. They're preaching the resurrection. They're preaching that the reason this man is made whole is because he's come in contact with the living Lord Jesus Christ. These guys can't flip out their union cards. They don't have any seminary credentials. They're not supposed to be up here at all, but here they are on Sadducean territory preaching the gospel. And yet the main thing, do you see it here? The teaching of the resurrection through Jesus Christ. The resurrection. By the way, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so that ticked them off. That's why they were sad, you see, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection, so it's a theological offense. Now catch this, eight weeks, a mere eight weeks before this, these were the very same men that put Jesus on trial with trumped up charges and put him to death. They thought they had already taken care of the Jesus problem. In verse 3, it talks about the jail time for preaching Jesus. Did you see that? And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Can't you see how discreetly they come in there right at evening? You know, the 3 o'clock was the last sacrifices to be made, six by six evening, and they were shutting down the temple. And they want to do it discreetly this time. It's kind of like how Don is when he's trying to turn the lights off so we'll go home. He's just kind of discreet looking around. Every now and then he'll flip the lights up and down a couple of times, you know, uh, my deacons back at Croppa would do that. They just stand in the back of the church. They turned off the lights, locked down the building uh, when it was time to leave and they would sometimes you'd hear that light flipping on and off back there to let you know. So, they're trying to be discreet. They whisk them away kind of and hold them overnight. They didn't want to cause a ruckus because they had this man they, they had thrown money into his tin can for 40 years. They knew the guy couldn't walk. They knew something happened to this man because he couldn't walk. They knew that God had to restore even the ability for him to get up on his feet. He hadn't walked for 40 years and he's walking. And so they whisk them away. Uh, the church leaders are arrested. And we think all is lost, right? I mean, if Peter and John are gone... Then the cause of Christ is over. But verse 4 says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. I think Luke, again, is a master craftsman. And he's telling us that the enemy tried to stop the gospel, yet the gospel triumphs. It still triumphs today. Peter and John are in jail all night. Folks, the enemies of the gospel Can do whatever they want to do to try to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the gospel cannot be stopped. Unless they put Jesus back in the tomb, it's not gonna happen, right? They cannot stop the gospel. Uh, You can put the apostles in prison. There are no modern-day apostles today, but you could put the original apostles in prison. You could kill their disciples. You can crush our missionaries, but you can't stop the gospel. The book of Acts is about the conquest and triumph of the gospel. And God will touch all nations with the gospel. He will save people from all people groups. And you can't stop it. Nobody can stop it. Then Luke gives us this total of 5,000, which I said before could have been up to 15. Now get this. 120, 3,000, 15,000. Boy, that's church growth, isn't it? That's explosive growth that the church is seeing. You know, how would you keep up with all the baptisms and all the discipling, all the interviews for church membership? The lesson is that the gospel is triumphing even amidst persecution, which is key for us to understand that that's always been the way it has been throughout all of history is that the church triumphs and advances Through persecution. Paul will say in 2 Timothy that he suffered attacks even as an evildoer. He's treated as an evildoer but the chains, but the gospel of God cannot be chained. Peter and John. Folks, they're easily dispensable. Aren't they? Graveyards are full of people who thought they were indispensable. But the gospel of Jesus Christ moves on. He works even Today. In 5 through 7, we have the, Sag, the Sanhedrin's inquiry into the matter. Remember, there's, by what power, by what name? There's 71 of them. They're community leaders. They're religious leaders. It would have included scribes and professional theologians. The elite of the elite. These were the experts in the law. And then we have this list of people. Alexander, Caiaphas. Let, let me just give you a note on one of them for the sake of time. How about this Caiaphas? Anybody ever heard of him? Y'all know who this guy is? Listen to John chapter 4. Aren't you glad? God is so sovereign. Right? He is. John 11. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Goofball didn't even know what he was saying, right? He didn't say it of his own accord. God told him to say it. Amen. And he said, yeah, he got it right, did he not? That one person would die for the nation. But that God would also gather into himself the children of God who were scattered abroad. Therefore, we're in Acts, right? Right? God is drawing back the, the, he was brought, he's drawing back the foreigners, that's key, of whatever ethnos, whatever language they are, whatever dialogue, dialect, He's drawing them back. That's just an example of one of the guys on this Supreme Court. That's the same man that spoke before Jesus was crucified. Same man that dealt in the crucifixion of Christ. Same man they're dealing with now. It was basically the judicial arm of the Sadducean party. And these were no doubt the same men that were seven or eight weeks before that. And here, the Bible says that Peter and John and this lame man that can't get over being saved. Just catch the picture. I mean, he's probably just still standing there jumping up and down and and high-fiving and and chest-bumping. He's been saved by grace through faith. And here are these dudes in their funny hats. I'm being serious. They had funny hats. Long flowing robes. And they're looking down upon They stand them up in the midst. They're in their elevated chairs or in a semicircle, And they're looking down on the one that is accused. And here are these two simple fishermen and a healed man that's happier than you could ever imagine. Because he's walking, but more than importantly, his soul has been redeemed. Here are these men decked out. And they say, by what power did you do this? By what name did you do this miracle? And the question has nothing to do with what they were teaching in the temple, really. Their main focus is the fact that you're not authorized to do this. They don't even ask about why they are preaching the resurrection. And as you've already seen, uh, they think they've already taken care of Jesus. I mean, this Jesus problem is supposed to be gone. They're just simply treating these men like criminals. Because they've come on the wrong turf, they don't have their credentials, and they're preaching the resurrection. And they ask, where did you get this power from? Where does it come from? John Stott aptly says, Memories of the trial of Jesus must have flooded Peter and John's mind when this was going on. They could hardly expect justice from the court that listened to false witnesses and condemned their Lord. Would they suffer the same fate? Now, you don't get that kind of persecution in the great U.S. of A. if you tell people about Jesus, do you? You don't right now, but you might in the future. But our brothers and sisters across this world face this every day. And you just don't know about it, but they do. You might remember that some two months later, we've got Peter who's confronted by a little servant girl about his vow to Jesus, his association with Jesus. And this little girl doesn't have on funny hats and a long robe. She's just a little servant girl. And not once, not twice, but three times, Peter's going to deny Jesus. And on the third time, he's going to curse and swear by an oath that he disavowed his allegiance. I do not know this man. The same Peter that chickened out in the face of a little girl, that same one who denied Jesus Christ three times, stands in front of the very seat of all Jewish power. The most powerful group in the world at that known time. And he's standing before them, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and he didn't chicken out. What amazing boldness. To proclaim who Jesus Christ is. Now Jesus' promise has come true as well, right? Promise fulfillment. What did He tell those disciples? He told them in Matthew 10 and 21 of Luke's gospel that you will be taken before rulers. You're going to be taken before kings. And you won't have to worry about what you're going to say because in that hour, the Holy Spirit of God will tell you what to say. And it's being fulfilled right here in the book of Acts. So here is Peter, right in the middle of the Supreme Court of the day, filled with the Holy Spirit, fulfilling all that Jesus said he was going to fulfill. And he speaks the word with boldness and without fear. And he addresses them. He addresses them straightforwardly, respectfully. But the the tone of the trial is about to change because Peter and John are really not the ones on trial, right? It's those 71 that make up the Sanhedrin that are on trial. And, of course, listen to the words. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, the actual word is sozo. Which is save. Right? Rescued from danger. That's the actual word. Greek word. If you're asking us about this, here's the answer. Answer The physical healing was a picture of his soul's restoration. I told you, God doesn't do miracles willy-nilly. This is not a miracle fest at a camp at a Pentecostal camp meeting. There's a reason why Jesus healed this man. It was a, it was a an attestation of the fact that he had been healed on the inside. And then, sins being forgiven, God gives him the ability to walk. The miracle was a picture of restoration. That Jesus Christ is the only one that can restore spiritual life and save your soul, but also restore physical life. In other words, if you want to talk about what it means to be good for people or good to people, you Sanhedrin, just watch what Jesus did. Look back at what Christ did to this person. Remember, they asked that question. If you're asking about this good deed, what can be greater than to save a man's soul? For the individual to be saved. And here's the truth. And let everyone in Israel know it. It is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What's that mean? In the name of Him. Well, it's the full revelation of His name. The name Yahweh was the name of God associated with all that He is. In character, in revelation, and in worth. And He says this is done in the full character and worth and work of Jesus. And then He adds in Jesus of Nazareth. Wow, Katie barred the door on that one, right? Because he's specifically saying that this God was Jesus of Nazareth. We're, talking, we're not talking about your Messiah stuff that you believe back from the Maccabean revolt that's built on a chicken coop theology. We're talking about the true Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Check out that slap in the face. It's almost like they say, you remember him. Just eight weeks ago, eight weeks ago, you crucified the Lord of glory. You killed your covenant God, Yahweh God. You put the God-man on the cross. Yes, the one that was from Jeru- not from Jerusalem, but the one from Nazareth. He was not a man from your sacred halls up here in Jerusalem in the temple. As a matter of fact, he's not the one you expected. He's not the one you were really looking for because you were looking for one that would restore political power. And to make sure they knew what he was talking about, he says, You crucified him. Uh, Any doubt about who he's talking about? He turns right around and looks at him and says, The one that you crucified. Talk about applicational preaching. Now we're told today, now don't be too strong, preacher. You can't be too much in your face, right? Can you see that gnarly finger coming out from Peter? I bet that thing could reach from here back to that B on that wall. <laughs> and he's got that gnarly finger out. You crucified. Remember, we really haven't started preaching until, we, until we're willing to say you. And point that finger this way, too. Right? Every one of us. And he says to them, You crucified him. You want to talk to, about criminals? You're putting us in the semicircle down on the floor? You're accusing us. Talk about criminals? You killed Israel's Messiah. Can't think of anything. More criminal than that. But God, His court in heaven, overruled the court on earth. God vetoed that decision. And how do you do it? By resurrecting Him from the grave. God nullified an unjust decision and raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You remember that verse? Because it was impossible for the grave to hold Him. Death had an impossible feat. And that was to hold Jesus in the grave. Why? Because Jesus knew no sin. Right? And, of course, He was God. He nullified their lying tongues and wicked hearts. It is by this one that this man stands whole. You think they were getting a sermon? You ask me. Now I've told you. Right? Applicationally, this is what you ask for. Now I've told you. The one you crucified. You ask how he's made whole. By the power of what name? And here's the name. And now, note this, folks. He's going to quote for us Psalm one hundred eighteen, twenty-two. Y'all, note this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become a cornerstone. Now, that's a direct quote from Psalm one hundred eighteen, twenty-two. Y'all, with me? Track with me. Don't lose the sermon. I hadn't landed the plane yet, right? One hundred eighteen, verse twenty-two. We're going to see it in a moment. And Jesus is actually going to quote this himself in Matthew 21:40. Let me show you that one first. Matthew 21:40. <clears throat> when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Well, Peter will use this same verse in his first epistle, in chapter 2, and he says that this stone has become precious in our sight. So in Acts, Peter connects the builders to who? Y'all want some applicational preaching? Apply it right to you? Who does Peter say the builders are? Those religious people. I tell you, and I've said it over and over again, most of the people in the Bible were saved out of religion. These were very religious people, but they were very lost. Right? They were lost. And so, here are these religious leaders, and Peter says, You are the builders. You're the ones who rejected the cornerstone. He was rejected by you, the builders. He is the chief cornerstone. Now, if you would, flip over to Psalm 118. You need to see where this is coming from. Psalm 118. They knew this psalm, by the way. The chief cornerstone is rejected in the sight of men, but exalted by God. This was God's doing. Beginning in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. "...the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation." Now, folks, who is he addressing there? Lord in caps, that is Yahweh. That is the personal name of God. That is God Almighty. And he's using that terminology and he says, "...God, you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes." This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. Oh, there it is. Yahweh. Oh, Lord, we pray. Give us success. In verse 25, they knew this psalm. And this is marvelous in the Lord's eyes. It's marvelous in what He is doing. He is the light of the world. And the festival, the festival sacrifice has been placed on the altar. Look, look on down. Verse 27, the Lord God, and He has made His light to shine upon us, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Does anybody know what that's representing? The ultimate sacrifice was placed on Calvary. That's the fulfillment of that verse. Pretty amazing, huh? Nothing happens by happenstance. It's all fulfillment given five to six hundred years. Well, this was a thousand years before Jesus would go to the cross. Bind the sacrifice to the altar. The ultimate sacrifice. So this, all of a sudden, would dawn upon the horizon of the Sanhedrin's way of thinking. And, and, and Peter, in essence, would drop the atomic bomb on them. He puts it right before them. Listen to Psalm 118, verse 20, 21. The verse right before the cornerstone. Check this out. Right before the stone that the builders rejected. Verse 21. I thank you that you have answered me and I have become my salvation. In other words, look, folks. Yahweh, God, has become my salvation. That is what he is saying. So what a bombshell. They knew the verse that preceded that section. And then Peter has this out-of-the-world boldness. Out-of-the-world confidence. An incredible, insane boldness to give us verse 12. Are y'all ready? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now I've got three applications for you. Are you ready for them? They're just straight off the text, and it'll be real fast. The first one there is salvation in no other. This is not complicated. We're going straight down the line. And he says to those Jews, you think because you've read the Scriptures and you've gone up to the temple that you have Yahweh's, track with me, you think you have Yahweh's salvation because you've gone up to the temple and you've got this sacred space. You think you have Yahweh's salvation because you've got these funny hats on and long flowing robes. You think you've got salvation because you're connected with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me make this very clear. We've got Psalm 118, and it says, There is salvation in no other, and his name is Yahweh. And now I've just told you that God has exalted him, and he's Yahweh God in the flesh, and his name is Jesus, and you can't have salvation no other way. Amen. That's what the text says. It is this one that you have crucified, but God raised him from the dead. There is salvation. In no other Number two. That was pretty quick, wasn't it? There is no other name under heaven given among men. His name is the only name. It's the name of God's exalted servant. Did you see it back in Acts 11, 13, uh, Acts 3:11 says, "While he clung to Peter and John, and all the people ran upon him in the portico. He's going to preach that sermon, and he's going to say, by faith in his name, this man is made well. You've got to have faith in his name. Now, here's what I want you to think about. How do you think the Jewish person would have received this? How would they have received this? Well, to them, there was salvation in only one name, and that was Yahweh. So when they said the name of Jesus, they would have said, what's that? Blasphemy. That, that's the way the Jewish crowd would have responded. Now take a pen and circle that word name in your Bible. And then circle that verb given to us. Circle the word name in your text. I promise you it won't tear your Bible up. Highlight, circle that word name in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And then circle the verb given. Do you know, folks, that this name has been given to us? In the language of the New Testament... The word given means to be rendered without exchange. Are y'all listening? This is the, I'm giving you the invitation. Don't sleep on me. Don't zip up your Bibles. Zip, zip, zip. You ever hear people do that? During the invitation. Zip, zip, zip. This is important, folks. I'm telling you there's no other way. You've heard that, right? And I'm telling you there's no other name. This is important. This is life or death. It's taking you one step closer to heaven as you listen or one step closer to hell. This is the name of... That has been given. Now hear that again. It's been given to us, which means it's rendered without exchange. It means for me to place something in your hand and not expect anything in return. And the tense of the verb means that it's been done in the past, and it has present abiding results today. That's what the tense given means. So it indicates that God is the one performing the act of giving. This is what God has done for you. He's given you the name He's given you the name. This is what God has done for us. It is a gift from God. Is this not what John 3.16 teaches? In this manner, God loved the world. That He gave His only one unique Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish. He gave as a gift. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is... If you get what you deserve for your sin, you're going to get death. The wages paid off is death. You're going to get that. But the... Say it. Does that sound like Acts 4.12? It's the gift of God. How about Ephesians 2.8? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Please don't miss this. This salvation is something that has been given to you. You didn't earn it. You cannot achieve it. And you can work yourself, your fingernails slammed to the bone. And you'll never accomplish it in your life. You can't buy it. It is freely given to you. Herein is the problem. That cuts across across the grain of our biggest struggle. We don't like anything as a gift. Mankind wants to believe that they have attained something on their own. That they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. and, And you can look at another man and you can say, Well, I've made it further than you've made it. And mankind struggles with this. We want to earn or deserve our salvation. Incidentally... That's what separates Christianity from all the other false religions. You heard it from this pulpit. There's only one true religion that brings you to God, and it's not because man goes to God, it's because God came to man. That's the only way we can do that. But he, think about this for a moment. In Islam, you have the hope of heaven, as they would characterize that, but you've got to keep the five pillars of Islam. You've got to give a 2.5% tax. Should I say this? I actually wish Baptists, some Baptists, would even give two point five percent. All right. Well, I mean, it's in. I mean, you know. But your good deeds are to outweigh your bad deeds, or in the end, you must be a martyr for Allah, not Yahweh, but Allah. The end result is you're working your way to heaven through Islamic teachings. This is also the difference between Mormonism. And, Christianity. and let me remind you that Mormons are not Christians. Period. Doesn't matter if it's your mama, your granddaddy, or whoever it is. On the authority of the word, a Mormon is not a Christian. Why? Because Mormons believe that you have to work your way to heaven. They believe in a works-based salvation. Their salvation, they'll say, is believing in Jesus. But it is a works-based salvation. So, in our faith, we've been given eternal life and the gospel In the name of Jesus Christ, you've been given it as a gift. It's the only religion in the world where we're given salvation as a gift. Now, some of you in this room are probably sitting there thinking, I'm not worthy of that kind of salvation. And you've got this thought that you're not worthy because you're not worthy. And some of you in this room are sitting here thinking, Preacher, I don't deserve salvation. And you've got that thought because you don't deserve salvation. So let's just go ahead and set this to the side. You're not worthy and you don't deserve it. And that's why it's a gift from God. Folks, you could live a million years and never deserve this kind of salvation. You you could live a million years and never earn this kind of salvation. It is impossible for you to earn this salvation. It is a gift from God. Yes, yes. You're unworthy. Yes, you don't deserve it. And when you're willing to admit both those things, you're a candidate for the gospel. You're a candidate to be saved by grace through faith that is given to us. Now listen. I preached my first sermon when I was 20 years First funeral when I was 20 years old. And I'm 46. I'll be 47 this year. Folks, I've preached a ton of funerals. I mean a ton of funerals. And I've buried people who were Sunday school directors and evangelistic directors. I've preached preachers' funerals. I've preached people who had Sunday school pens that started on their nose and landed on the ground. They've got every fulfillment you could ever have in Baptist life. Sunday school directors, it doesn't matter. The list goes on on. WMU directors... I've done those funerals as well. Tons and tons and tons of them. And easily people could come to a funeral and say, if anybody deserved heaven, it was that person. No! Get that out of your mind. Not a single person that I've ever stood inside of a funeral or inside of a church and stood over a casket and preached. Not a single person have I ever preached a funeral for deserved to be in heaven. Or did they earn their way to heaven? You don't get to heaven because you're a good person. It's impossible. You get to heaven because your sins have been forgiven. And you've got a good Savior who loved you. And the Bible says He's been given to us. Not a single person will ever earn salvation. You can't do it. You and I will never be worthy and we'll never deserve it. Thank God for grace. Thank God that He would love us enough to save us and put it in such a way where He gives salvation as a gift and you have to believe in what Jesus Christ accomplished on Calvary. Right? Repentance is more than just intellectual assent. It's when that intellectual understanding of who Christ is moves itself in your heart to trust and commitment and you turn 180 degrees from the way you've been going and you move from the realm of unbelief to belief. And you come to that place and say, Jesus Christ... By your grace and through what you did for me on Calvary. And me confessing to you my sinfulness. You've forgiven me of that sin. Giving me, me your righteousness. And when I go to heaven, you're going to take me there. And if you don't take me there, I'm just going to be damned. And that's the truth of the matter. That's the truth of what we believe in Christ Jesus. I've got one more. It's in the name that we must be saved. No other way. The name has been given. It's in that name that we must be saved. He didn't say you can be, or you might be. Folks, God is making a demand upon the world. Is that right for God to do that to us? Can God really demand something from the world? In in the U.S. of A? Really? God's demanding something? Notice the tense of the verb. It is in that name that you... Folks, God is... Obliging. Hey, God is telling you that you must be saved through Jesus Christ. Now, the, now, don't you think for a moment that those Sanhedrins, they're having coronaries here. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they're about to stroke out when he says this. You must be saved through Him. Now, when we read this, we immediately think about pluralistic ways to heaven. When, when it says there's no other way... We, we immediately say, well, yeah, you're right, because salvation is exclusive. That means any other way you put forward to get people to heaven and have sins forgiven, we don't believe that, right? Universalism, pluralism, people like that believe there are many roads to heaven. This verse says no. There's only one way, right? But think about the Jew when they hear this. They only believed there was one way. They did not believe in multiple ways. So the original meaning of the text is not to teach against pluralism. The original meaning of the text is to teach that this one way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is God. That's the teaching. He's the Yahweh God who made the worlds. He's the very one who rolled back the seas like you take a squeegee and push it across the gym floor. He opened up the seas and left. That's the God we're dealing with. He's the one who made the worlds. That same God came down from heaven and took on human flesh. And Yahweh saves He came to save his people. Y'all got anywhere to go? Just a few more words and I'm done. All right. Isaiah, listen. He's calling on Yahweh's name that brings salvation. And listen to Isaiah 43 do Don't turn, just listen, because I know you don't have time. 43 Listen to this verse. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. That's good! It says, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. Now track with me, verse forty-five, chapter 45, verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together who told this long ago, who declared it of old. Was it not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior... There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. This Jesus of Nazareth is God. And Peter is saying to all the rulers of that day who think that Yahweh gives salvation. Yes, he does. And Jesus Christ is Yahweh God. I bet you could have heard a pin drop in that place. Remember, they're on trial. This passage teaches clearly there's only one way. Uh, But both of these things are related. Think about this. There's only one way. There's only one name that's been given. Folks, but let me tell you, that's not enough for you. you got to believe in that name. It's not enough for you just to say, yes, there's no other way. And yes, the name has been given. But have you personally put your faith in that name? Right? You, You have to. Not just believe the facts, but you're consciously believing trusting in Jesus Christ, having saving faith. And according to this text, you must believe is an obligation. And there are some of you this morning here and you're not saved. And what I mean explicitly by that, folks, there's not three categories, four categories, five categories of people. There's just two, lost and saved. According to the Bible, there are those who are lost and there are those who are saved. And so I'm saying to you today, I'm not asking you if you've prayed a prayer. I'm not asking you if you've gone through baptismal waters. I'm not asking you if you've come to church. What I am asking you is this. Have you come to Jesus by grace through faith? Have you received Him as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted in the work that He did on Calvary for you personally? Have you personally turned from sin and self and trusted Jesus Christ only for salvation? Here's the good news. We've got an able and a willing and a capable Savior who can save you from your sins. It happens one way. And one way only. And that's through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we began the sermon by saying, I believe this book. Now do you still believe it? Amen. Do you? Do you still believe it? On the, in the character of the word, I declare to you today that there is salvation in no other. Number two, There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. And I declare to you by the grace of God, I am saved today because I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ only to save me from my sins. Do you have that testimony? You can have it today. Right? Great God, Yahweh, God, the personal, covenant-making, keeping God who has no beginning and no end. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We cry out to you, our God, and say, Yahweh saves. Jesus saves. Lord, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to study Zechariah 9 on Palm Sunday. And they're crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're going to be saying, Yahweh, Yeshua saves. They don't even know what they're saying, but they're going to say it. Because the king is coming riding on a foal of a donkey. Lord, you are the king. And Lord Jesus, I would ask that you would interrupt our minds, overthrow our complacency, undermine our thoughts of behavior. And God, would you just take somebody and resurrect them today. God, would you make them alive in you. Father, would you save a soul? And for Christians, Lord, would you embolden us to have the confidence to declare to people, That there is salvation in no other. There's no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. We must put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. God, would you work during this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.